First Peter chapter 3, verse number 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if, my, if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless your word to our hearts, to the hearts of the children of God, and to the lost as well. May the gospel be presented clearly enough today to lead someone to the Lord, and may the rest of us be brought into the presence of the Holy God. Bless, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We quite often begin by using our imaginations, or I try to encourage you to do that. I would like you to picture yourself walking up to a stranger on the street, someone you've never spoken with before, and you boldly ask, would you like me to tell you how to be born again by the blood of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perfect stranger. How do you think that's going to go? How much farther than, than that are you going to get with this person? Probably not very far. Not many people are interested in investigating spiritual things, especially things which involve their own hearts. People say, and some surveys suggest, that many of our neighbors are religious people. But just because they're religious doesn't mean that they're interested in the things of God, that they're interested in the gospel. Isn't it true that religious people can be, and often are, quite secular? Most, I would say most, Several of the people that live in my neighborhood, people who live on houses around us, uh, are religious to some degree. Uh, beside the Roman Catholics who are two doors down from us, those professing to be Christians, and even the Baptists across the road, when it comes to the Lord's Day, when it comes to Sunday, they are just as secular as the lost people. They have their uh, recreational camping and their boating and their yard maintenance and, and uh, they're doing things which keep them out of the house of God. And even those that do attend church, even, to, even regular churchgoers, so often sit and have to endure secular psychology rather than the declaration of the word of God. We live in a secularized society. One that was once spiritual, or at very least religious, but which has become worldly and secular. This is why the average American is not going to listen to you when you come up to him on the street and say, let me tell you about the sacrifice of Jesus. He has no interest in it, none whatsoever. Without some sort of preparatory work, most of our neighbors refuse to hear a presentation of the gospel. They would much rather be playing their video games and streaming their movies on their phones than sitting in the house of God listening to the word. And even sometimes when they come into the house of God and the word of God is presented, they are still playing their video games and streaming their movies yeah. during the church service. There's no hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
There's no desire for the blessing of God because we have all the blessings that we want, what we think we need. There's no desire for heaven, no consideration of what is going to happen when our 70 years are over on this earth and we have to face the other side of death. Many observers have said, we are living in a post-Christian society. I believe that's to be true. When Peter was writing this letter, the world was in the very early days of Christianity. Society at that time was just as religiously secular as ours is today. But for them, it was because Christ is only being now presented to you. It was not a post-Christian society. It was a pre-Christian society. There were homes where one member of the family was saved. Maybe it was a child. Maybe it was a husband. And the rest of the family were still in their uh, Jewish heritage or their, their heathen religion. And those unsaved people were just as reluctant to hear the gospel as our neighbors are reluctant. They may not have been exposed to evolution and the sexual revolution and humanism and wishy-washy Christendom, but they were just as antagonistic to the gospel. In chapter 3, Peter has some advice for Christian women who are the wives of unbelievers. And without using the term in verse number one, Peter brings up the subject of lifestyle evangelism. That verse takes us to the question, how can we entice people who have absolutely no interest in spiritual things to become interested? How can we communicate and share what we know to be eternally important with people who only live for the world and for this particular moment? Peter supplies a partial answer to those questions. I recently read an interesting statement. Missionary evangelist Tim Peterson said, much more of our society is reachable than we imagine. Although these people may not be immediately reapable. They are reachable, but not reapable. He said, and I agree, because I find it in the Word of God, that there are two aspects to the work of evangelism. There is the absolutely essential proclamation of the gospel. This is the work of informing the non-Christian that he is a sinner and Christ is the only Savior. Neither is there salvation in any other. Paul said to the Corinthians, Christ sent me to preach the gospel. For the preaching of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. He also said in another place, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul told Timothy, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, because this is the God-given means of reaching souls. The spreading of the word of God, the preaching of the word of God. 
But in addition to the preaching of the gospel, there's the work of affirming the gospel. This is the ongoing, sometimes long-term process of modeling and explaining the message of Christ through our personal lives. Do you know a Christian? You're a sermon in shoes. Peter says, ye wives, so live for Christ that even if your husbands obey not the word today, they may eventually, even apart from the actual preaching of the word, be won by your godly way of life. Both these aspects of evangelism work together. They blend together. The emphasis of one over the other is detrimental to our, our ministry. They both go together. We can't afford to emphasize one point to the exclusion of the other. This morning, I'd like us to consider Peter's point about wearing or walking or working out the gospel. But first, multitudes of people today obey not the word. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. I think it was last week that I said there are two kinds of people in the world. There are sheep which are lost and there are sheep which have been found by Christ and brought to the fold. That dichotomy can be expressed in many ways. And Peter gives us one of those alternatives. There are people who obey the word of God, and there are people who do not. Brother Fulton and I were talking the other day about the subject of the word. And I bring it up to your attention because there it is right here in our verse. He expressed the possibility of preaching on this subject last Sunday, but he didn't do that for whatever reason. And um, simply because Peter is telling me I need to address this, I'm addressing it. I hope I don't offend Austin when he gets back. Maybe he'll never know that I've done it. There are people who obey the word, and there are people who don't. When our apostle speaks of these husbands as not obeying the word... <coughs> What did he mean by the word? Wasn't he saying they were not listening to, they were not believing the written word of God? Wasn't he talking about those who refused to obey the Bible? Of course, in Peter's day, they didn't have the 66 books that we have. They had the Old Testament. Maybe they had one or two or maybe all four of the, the Gospels. There might have been one or two of the epistles that Paul had written. But uh, even though they didn't have all that we have, when Paul, Peter refers to the word here, he's talking about the written word that they did possess. That was in their hands. But there is another possible interpretation. The living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. These men refused to believe what they were told from the Bible, and they refused to believe what their wives said about Christ, the living word. When the Apostle John said, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was speaking about the second person of the Godhead. He was speaking about the Son of God. He was speaking about the Lord Jesus. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Christ became one of us. His incarnation. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Christ in His deity there. And as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on His name, Christ as Savior. My conversation with Austin began with the question, a question about Hebrews 4.12. You're familiar with the verse. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In contrast to every other commentary I have ever checked, John Gill says that Hebrews 4.12 is talking about Christ, the living word, not the written word. And the truth is, there are statements in the surrounding context which lead, lead or lend credence to that opinion. For example, verse number 13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I'm not going to pursue this. Maybe Austin will take it up someday. But I will say, those who refuse to obey the word are not only refusing to obey Christ, they're refusing to obey the written word. They go together. What do Christ and his word tell us to do? Well, after revealing to us that we're all sinners, they both urge us to humble ourselves before God and to agree with the Lord. We are sinners. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30 Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The Bible commands us, and we believe the command of the living God, that all men everywhere should repent before the Lord. And the Bible commands us also to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved from the penalty our sins deserve. God's word commands us all to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Lean not unto our own fleshly, secular understanding. I'm going to step out onto a limb here to tell you that the husbands of these women here in Peter had heard the gospel in some way. Just as everyone who's listening to me this morning has heard the gospel in a very limited form. I say that these people had heard because they chose not to obey. They had something that they were not obeying. Maybe those men along with their wives had heard Paul preaching in their local synagogue. Maybe they heard Peter or Silas presenting the commands of the gospel there in the marketplace in their little community. Maybe the men's wives had shared with them the testimony of their conversion. In whatever way it was presented to them, they rejected the word. They rejected the message of the Savior. They pushed aside the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
They had done just what some of you are doing to the message this morning. Of course, I'm referring to all those that are listening by way of technology. They had not obeyed the commandment of God which was presented through His Word. What's going to happen to people who disobey God? Just think about it. The Lord's not going to be very pleased. What will happen to those who refuse to obey the God who knows all things, understands and sees all things, even what's going on in a person's heart? What will take place at the great white throne when the judge of all things points to people's willful disobedience? You did not obey the gospel on such and such a day. It is appointed unto men, uh, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, judgment. God is angry, eternally angry with the wicked every day. The Lord Jesus, the one who is called the Word, will soon return to execute judgment upon all. The heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Why are they ungodly? Because they have refused to obey the word of God. And they will hear God say, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But today... Those disobedient husbands may be won by the conversation of their godly wives. I said a few weeks ago in Sunday school as we started our our series on soul winning that only one verse in the Bible speaks about soul winning and it's found in the Old Testament. I referred to it again this morning. While that is literally true... I have come to see that the statement is not exactly accurate. 1 Peter 1, 3, 1 hints at soul winning. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. What is it to win a soul? Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. The word which Solomon uses there is very common. It's found nearly a thousand times in the Bible. But only once is it translated to win or winneth. Three quarters of the time it's translated to take. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that taketh souls is wise. Similarly, the Greek word that Peter uses is three quarters of the time translated to gain. What is it to win a soul? In the language and in the sight of God, it is to take that soul from the grasp and the enslavement of Satan. It is to gain that person for Christ and the kingdom of heaven. It is to snatch and rescue that soul from hell. 
God has chosen to use his own specially designed tools to carry out this winning of souls. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. It's at this point we need to be careful, that I need to be careful. All by itself, your godly life is never going to lead a soul from Satan to the Savior. Your life is not sufficient. This is where some forms of lifestyle evangelism go awry. They stop right there. That unsaved husband will never willingly follow anyone to Christ, even his wife, because his heart has no desire to go in that direction. It's just the nature of the fallen heart. He may respond superficially and go and hear a gospel preacher. Or he may superficially listen to the witness of his wife, but of his own will... He will never respond positively. He has to be stirred by the Holy Spirit. Practically speaking, no one is ever going to be argued into accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. Evangelism is not an intellectual exercise. Salvation is not a part of or a result of of education. Rather, they are blessings and results of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In writing to one of his co-workers, Titus, Paul testified, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures. You could say these are the husbands of chapter 3. Living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. Paul could have added, but didn't really need to, we were not obedient to the word of God. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared toward, toward, man, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy. According to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How was it that the Christian wife had been saved, justified? How had she been made an heir of God, a possessor of eternal life? Well, it was by God's grace. The Lord was merciful to her. And that was applied through the regeneration work of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, God miraculously did it through His Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can take a heart which is as hard as a chunk of granite and give it life. Make it responsive. What is the primary tool that the Spirit uses? It is the Word of God, which these men have not regarded. Paul says, 
Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved from the penalty of his sin. And how shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? A preacher? Is it that important? It is important because that is God's ordained plan. Saving faith in Christ cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Earlier, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you people. The preaching of the word of God the preaching of the gospel is God's ordained method of evangelism and the saving of souls. It is his primary tool. But I go back to where we began. We live in a secular world that has no interest in hearing the preaching of the word. How can we break through that intellectual barrier and that rock-hard heart to give them the gospel. Well, ladies, live like Christian ladies. Even though your husband disobeys the word, maybe you can do something about that. Here's the purpose and the use of lifestyle evangelism. The second aspect of evangelism is the affirmation of the gospel through our lives. Picture the servants who are described in Peter's last chapter. He has some instructions for servants. That slave, that Christian slave, may never be permitted to speak to his employer about Christ. He's a slave. He's a servant. When he was first born again, he became so excited about the Savior that he boldly testified to everybody, including his boss, about what the Lord had done for him. And his boss heard it and said, never bring that subject up again. If you do, I will beat you within an inch of your life. But because he was a new man in Christ, that servant also became a model employee. The most thorough, the most diligent, the most conscientious member of the staff. And because of the change in that man's life, because it was so obvious, perhaps the boss became just a little more curious about what has taken place here. Why is this one who was so stubborn before so obedient? If that husband has threatened his wife and demanded that she never speak of Christ again, but he is forced to see that she has become more respectful, more quick to be a blessing, more, generally speaking, sweet than she was before, she may eventually win her husband to the Savior. Let's say that this woman's husband was eventually born again. It may come at a time when there is no presentation of the Word of God. There is no preaching involved. Nothing. 
There may not be any gospel sermon preached at the time of his conversion. Nevertheless, somewhere in the background, somewhere underneath it all, has been the Word of God in some fashion, some form. But since that time, this wife has been living that gospel. She has become a sermon in shoes. And he's heard the message again and again by looking into her smiling face when he's just abused her for overcooking the roast. And it speaks to his heart. The Word of God is present as a part of the equation. But at the moment of that man's conversion, it may not have been there. But it's there. It's got to be there. The Lord may use a child. He may use a wife. He may use a a gospel track, a piece of paper, or any number of other things to soften a heart toward the Word of God. Someday, each of us are going to stand before the judge. Someday you are going to stand before the judge, the one who is the living word. And I believe that this message will come up at that time, in some fashion or another. Have you been obedient to the word? Or are you like this husband, going on in your own way, obeying no one but yourself? Will you recognize That you are either a child of God or you're not because of your obedience to the word? Will you also see that the Lord has used people and circumstances to make you once again look and listen to the word of God? What will your judgment day be like? Will you hear Jesus say, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels? Or will you hear, Welcome, obedient one, believer. Are you obedient unto the gospel of the word of God? Please join with me in standing.